So as you saw last weekend, we had our wonderful groundbreaking celebration. We would have taken you to the site, but there would be still people that would be stuck there because the dirt is quite thick and pretty dusty. So we did it here. Uh, it was a thrill. And if uh, all the group that went out and set all that stuff up during the, mess during the service and uh, they had these beautiful flower arrangements. In fact, they, they gave Laura one on the way out. If you can pull up that picture of the flower arrangement. And, uh, and it, was, it was just great. And had these little golden shovels and everything. And so we took this flower arrangement. There we go. Flipped this flower arrangement and we put it right in the centerpiece of our kitchen. Well, some of you know that I've been kind of going through this arm thing, and yes, I'm supposed to still be in the splint and all that. I'm not. I'm defying doctor's orders, which is, well, anyway. So uh, we, we were there, and, and Laura was kind of, we took it off, and she had to kind of massage it a little bit, put some stuff on it and all this. Anyway, long story short, she started saying, man, this stinks. This, your arm stinks. And, I'm, and I keep smelling my arm, and I felt very, very insecure at that moment. And because uh, I tried so hard not to stink, and, I had, and she says, whoa, I can't take this anymore. And we were sitting there, and I went, oh, my gosh. And then, and then she kind of walked away, and I, and I was, was really sniffing it. And then, and then she stopped, and she came back, and she reached over to these beautiful flowers. And after only four days, they were already beginning to wither and smell. And this whatever the particular flower was that was stinking, which first of all made me feel wonderful that I didn't smell, it wasn't me. But it hit me at that moment. That is so much Isaiah 40, isn't it? I mean, this is a picture, the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of God abides forever. We are here for a blink of an eye in the cosmological view of all things and billions of years and we are here but a moment, and yet I still struggle daily with the idea that, well, I have a, ho I have a house at, and then my address, or I have, or I possess this, or I, I have this illusion of permanence. I ha well, and in, from a soul and spirit perspective, there is permanence, but in terms of our stewardship, of the life we live on this little planet in the middle of a seemingly inconsequential galaxy among trillions of galaxies, we are here but a fraction of a second, cosmically speaking. It's in that context that I think with a backdrop that can inform us of how we should view this Luke chapter 19 parable of the minas. We have to recognize that our stewardship is so small and so momentary, and it brings sobriety to me as I think about every single day that I wake up. What will this feel like? There will be a day when I will stand before the Lord and give an account for the life that I've lived. Now, prior to us opening and unpacking this this morning, I think it's important to see that there is a secular view that is appropriate and right. I think this gives us foundation for understanding, well, number one, and, and I'll, I'll defend this, an understanding of capitalism, at least private property. In fact, two of, the ten, two of the ten of the Ten Commandments deal with covetousness of someone else's stuff and then not to steal someone else's stuff, assuming that people have 
stewardship or ownership of stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning and talk a little bit about from a just as purely a work perspective. This is informative in terms of creating our biblical worldview that anyone who follows Jesus wants to uh, walk into. Does that make sense? And then obviously there are spiritual uh, uh, ramifications here about our stewardship and what that will look like as living souls once we are then resurrected from the dead and give an account for our lives. Now, again, and the reason I spent two weeks on come and eat and go, if you're still not a follower of Jesus, this is a little bit advanced. This is like jumping into second-year calculus, and you still need to go back and learn a little bit of your multiplication tables. It's a little bit that way, and so some of this is informative, and it's not, I don't regret saying this in the context of someone who hasn't yet come to Jesus, but understand that this is really more directed towards, in terms of the spiritual ramifications, it's directed towards followers, but in terms of just humanity and our work ethic, it also has import for that as well. Allow me to pray. Lord Jesus, we need, we need insight into the ways in which you've created the universe and our role in it, carrying your image into the created order. Lord, give us insight and wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so a number of years back, and I am so uh, beholden to R.C. Sproul, who has since passed. By the way, I love R.C. Sproul. Some of you may know he's part of the Gospel Coalition or was part of the Gospel Coalition. He lived in Florida. He was a big golfer. And he was a renowned speaker around the world, and he could just spin a tail like no one else. I just loved R.C. Sproul. He tended to smoke a cigar, a little bit Winston Churchill-like. He was a member at his club, and he would intentionally go out and take all of his theological books and prepare his messages at his own country club. And he would lay them all out, just lay them out all over the place. And people would come in and go, there's that crazy guy or there's that whatever. But at his memorial, and it was interesting because it had some kind of overlap with the vision of links and different things like that. At his memorial, how many men got up and said, well, it started by just me seeing that crazy guy over in the corner, but he came to where we were and then I'd ask him or I'd throw a little uh, something at him and it wouldn't stick and then he'd give me an answer and then I and I said, this guy isn't crazy, he's actually really brilliant and we started the conversation and there was one in particular that really grabbed me, he said, because he was there, he changed my whole life and I fell in love with Jesus and he was speaking at his memorial. So I'm a big fan of R.C. Sproul, still am, can't wait to have the opportunity to meet him in his resurrected body, mine as well, mine as well. So R.C. Sproul took this in a way, as I was listening to him teach on this, I, he took this in a direction that I don't know that I'd ever really thought of, and that was more of a secular worldview of an understanding that God is into private ownership of property, but not maybe the capitalism that you may think of, because obviously there are radically different forms of capitalism, as there are on the sliding scale of what would be Marxist theology from kind of a soft socialism all the way to a hardcore communism. But somehow over the last hundred years, there was something that emerged called liberation theology, a lot of it in South America, it was an attempted synthesis between Marxist ideology and then Christian theology. And in doing that, it was the, the real attack was social issues. 
Now, first of all, is Jesus interested in social issues? You better believe he is. We cannot read this parable only thinking about those people that we may lead to Jesus as that's really the only stewardship that we're responsible for. We're responsible for much more than that. We're responsible to get up off the couch and work and work hard. The foundations of a, an understanding of capitalism, but not the typical capitalism where there is, obviously, there are some rapacious characters out there who will swindle and manipulate the system and do everything they can, and capitalism can turn very ugly very quickly. We have cycles that we see in the American experiment of capitalism where there will be massive abuse of power, massive abuse of position, and obviously we need the government in there to intervene in various ways to, well, hold rank on this capitalism. Again, there, but there is something that again, is referred to as stewardship capitalism, and that's what I believe we're talking about here. I am a capitalist because I believe that the, though the intentions may be good in terms of a socialistic understanding and an egalitarianism and an equality, not all men and women are built the same and not all men and women work as hard or uh, uh, they don't work the same. They don't put the same energy into it. And as a result, you're always going to have inequities. And Jesus is concerned about the poor. Of course he is. But the intentions of socialism, though they may be good, the outworkings of socialism and certainly communism, I think we, have a, we can look over the previous century and say that didn't go as well as, the, as, it, as it should have. We were looking for, well, well yeah, it doesn't posit the, well, the basic fallenness of man into the equation, and as a result, it has led to catastrophe after catastrophe. But, well, again, you could point out, many of you could point out capitalism has led to that. Unchecked capitalism can lead to that as well, but as a follower of Jesus, I believe in stewardship capitalism. In other words, I believe in hard, hard work, and then turning what I have been given by God, the aptitudes, and the time in which I lived, and the family that I was born into, and you mix all that concoction with really hard work, and it can lead to something really beautiful, especially now as a follower of Jesus, where I can now steward those things that I have both worked hard for and been given, and it is both. It is not one or the other, and I can actually steward it in such a way to make this planet a better place, and even more importantly, advance the kingdom of the king who bought me on that cross 2,000 years ago. So it's both. So let's read Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Now, while they were listening to these things, who I think this is still the crowd at Zacchaeus' house. We don't know for sure, but I think this is, he certainly still leaves, probably in Jericho, on his way. We looked at the Zacchaeus for a number of weeks, on his way to Jerusalem. So the, he was listening to these things, these folks were, and Jesus went on to tell a parable. Now, we don't often have this, but we have a direct link. Why is he going to tell this parable? Because, and it tells us, so we have this link here, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Why is he going to tell this parable? 
I don't know why Zacchaeus decided to follow Jesus. He obviously had a radical heart transformation. We all come to Jesus with mixed motivations, at least I did. Uh, I mean, we, we don't want to go to, we don't want to be separated from him from all of eternity. And we love the, the bliss that the Bible describes in terms of the relationships and the garden and the reestablishment of the Garden of Eden of sorts on this on a new earth and in, in it within the context of a new heavens. We like that idea, but we're somewhat mixed. Maybe Zacchaeus was mixed. Maybe he thought, I'm getting caught up this. I am so, I so believe that Jesus is the Messiah that was long awaited, and now he's accepted me. We're marching our way on into Jerusalem, and he's going to throw off this Roman overlords some way and reestablish the nation of Israel, and I'm on the ground floor friends and family stock, right? I am on the ground floor where our stock is going to go this way, and I went from the hated and the despised to being really, well, here we go. And Jesus had to mute that kind of enthusiasm. Whether Zacchaeus had it or not, it was certainly roaming around, and we can even see it in the hearts of his own disciples. What are we going to do? We're going to be part of the team. We're, we're, we're the guys. This is the startup you want to be part of. This is going on into Amazon territory. This is going to surpass Microsoft. This is, going, this is going well past all these other. This is it. This is it. We're part of the right team. And then he spoils it all by telling this parable. They were expecting the kingdom was going to manifest itself in the way in which they thought that it was going to manifest itself right now. So he told them this parable. Interesting. So he said, a nobleman went into a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas. Now, what is a mina? A mina is about a pound. A mina is composed of about 100 drachmas, and that's about a little over three months' wages. So he took 10 of his bond slaves and he gave each one of them a mina. Now, this sometimes people conflate this with the story of the or the parable of the talents. I don't have time to get into that. But in that case, he gave them different numbers of talents. In this case, he gave each one one. I have I have my own reasons on why I think that why they're he he tells both. To me, this is within it any particular group at any one given time, any ethnicity, and the other one is maybe all of humanity. Some people have been given a lot, and some people have been given only a little. In this case, everybody's given about the same thing in this parable, okay? So he says, he says this, do business with this, do business until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. Well, the first appeared and said, master, your mina has made 10 minas more. That's a good return. 10 times. And he said, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Well, you're going to be in, be in authority over 10 cities. The right. Why would he do that? Why would the master do that? He's, he's displayed his ability to multiply. He's displayed his ability to advance the cause. 
not just have the right ideas about what could be, but the risk that's involved to get from 1 to 10 is overwhelming. That's true in this world. It's very easy just to kind of sit back in your little room and and leave the hard work for the, you know, the Elon Musks of the world or whoever that you may perceive to have more acumen in the world than you do and just sit back and not take any risk. There's just no way in a fallen world you're going to hurt some people, you're going to be hurt by people. It's a risky, dirty business down here living on this little mud heap. It is. Even if you're well-intentioned, you're, you're just, business is hard. It's hard to do business. And you have things that confront you every single day. But he did it, and he was, he was congratulated by his master for doing so. And then the second came and said, well, your mina, master, notice your mina. Well, that's a big, that's a big statement that Jesus is making in this parable. Your mina, not my mina, your mina has made five minus. That's still pretty good. You'd still hire that person to oversee your portfolio, wouldn't you? Five times, not bad. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Notice the glaring loss there. Not well done, good and faithful servant kind of the thing. Well, you're still going to be over. So it wasn't quite the, quite the celebration, but still, you know, okay, you're going to be over five cities. And then another come and says, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. Well, I was a little afraid of you because, well, yeah, not. You are an exacting man, and you take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, okay, by your own words, I'll judge you. You worthless, some, some translations evil or wicked, you worthless slave, did you, not, did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up where I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Well, why didn't you put your... Why didn't you put that mine in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And then he, the nobleman, said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Marxist ideology at its core is take it away from the guy who has ten minas and give it to the one that has one. And this seems like a complete upending of an understanding of a governmentally enforced taking away from those who have, and why do they have? Well, maybe because they've stewarded their life well. Maybe they've inherited it. That's true. I don't have a problem with inheritance tax, really. But if someone has worked really hard and someone sat on the couch eating ring dings for the last five years, and one has and one does not have, so that you do understand that there are implications in terms of the way we view the stewardship of our lives and even economic ideologies. And they said to him, well, master, he already has 10. And then Jesus said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have, even what he does have, excuse me, shall be taken away. And by the way, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. 
Jesus, couldn't you soften that a little bit? <laughs> I mean, this is a nice parable. It's already pretty staggering. It's, it's kind of upending the way, you know, maybe we think about things. But couldn't you leave off the slay them in my presence? Because I'm trying to share the gospel at my club and things. And be, I'm going to take, they come into a Bible study and I see slay them in my presence and I skip over that part. What, what is this that you're trying to say? Well, first of all, it's a parable. But now we need to dive in and say, okay, what is Jesus trying to communicate at a core level? What is he, how instructive can this be for us in the 21st century? Very instructive. Something you need to understand a little bit historically. There was uh, a man named King Herod the Great. King Herod died about 4 B.C., Prior to his death, he had decided that he needed it, his, he didn't want uh, the Romans to come in and completely overlord it. They had lived under this Herodian dynasty for a period of time. And so he wanted it split among his own progeny. There was Archelaus and Antipas and, and that we see even in other places in the New Testament uh, and Philip and, and all these. And so he wanted it split. And, but over Judean region, the primary, Jerusalem and surrounding areas, Jericho being one, he wanted it to go to Archelaus. And so after he died, there was an immediate vying for among his own progeny. There was this work of trying to get, well, to get their own rulership expanded or to solidify it, make them king of the jurisdiction. They didn't want to just be a tetrarch. They wanted not even to be just an ethnarch over an ethnic, ethnic people. They wanted to be a king. It was, in fact, their father who was King Herod. They didn't want to just be an overlord of sorts. They wanted to be king. And so what happened is that Archelaus had built in Jericho a very beautiful palace for himself. And in fact, he was immediately wanting to be known as king. Now, prior to this, he had gone during a Passover, and uh, he was trying, actually, from what Josephus tells us, he was actually trying to endear himself to the Jewish community and the Pharisaical community, etc., and yet they really weren't having it, and so he ends up getting upset, and one thing leads to another, and 3,000 people were slaughtered over Passover. Not a great way to get the vote voting element in your in your area, and as a result, when he was on his way to Rome, there were people among the Pharisees in this delegation that also went commensurately with him, not with him, but along uh, contiguously with him, up to see Caesar Augustus and, and ask him, pleaded with him, in fact, not, would you please not put this man over us? Do not let him rule. Do not let him be king. Now, anybody who lived in that area, because he was giving this, anybody would have known that story. Now, why did Jesus fold that in? Is that all, the only thing that he's trying to use? Clearly not. There is a parallelism, and it stops pretty much there. There is a parallelism, parallelism with what he knows he's about to go, because he's headed to Jerusalem, and they're going to be pleading with God, not Caesar Augustus, do not let this man rule over us. And so he's clearly writing himself into the script as well, but it captures their 
their imagination, most scholars believe he's referring to Archelaus, I would say the predominant number, and that they would have said, oh, he's talking about Archelaus. Oh, well, he's clearly not because Archelaus wasn't given permission, wasn't able to get the full kingdom. In fact, Caesar just allowed him to be an ethnarch and not a king. And in fact, 10 years later, he would be deposed and he would be jettisoned off to Gaul. But here was the foundations, and so it captured their their imagination, and then they're realizing, but this story takes a strange twist, because here the nobleman comes back with a kingdom and then sets up his rule and his reign. What's Jesus doing here? He's trying again to mute their expectations of an immediate an immediate kingdom being set up. They did not understand Genesis chapter 12, the promise to Abraham. They weren't able to completely understand that in the seed of Abraham through Isaac would come a seed that would bless the whole world, all the nations. They were still focused on their themselves and their own nation. Jesus is saying, we're going global with this. Isaiah 52, same thing. He's going to be sprinkling many nations. He knew he was going to have to go away, but his wasn't going to be a voluntary. Well, it was voluntary, but his wasn't going to be a traveling to somewhere else. His was going to be, well, he was going to exit stage left because of his own tragic and brutal death on a cross, which is the very purpose that we see him very intention to go to Jerusalem. He'd set his eye there and he wasn't going to be distracted. But he was going to go away for a long time to receive a kingdom, and we're still counting, and it's been 2,000 years. But the story doesn't conclude there. The story says the nobleman comes back. In this case, he does. He comes back, and all mouths are going to be shut. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the Lord of the universe. Sometimes I wonder, how, how is it that Jesus, that the creator of the universe, allows us to be down here and just wah, 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 and argue and, you know, boast and talk about, you know, or, you know we're, we're atheists, we're agnostics. I, I'm not mocking you if you're in that place, but I'm just telling you, according to what Jesus was very clear about there's coming a day when all things are going to be set right and there aren't, there's not going to be any more argument anymore. It's going to be over. Our time is out. We either stewarded our lives well and believed into Him or we chose not to. Too risky. Don't trust. So let's quickly go into the three categories of people that are unpacked right here with this parable. There are the good slaves. Now, again, please, if you're new to Church of the Red Door, you're watching maybe on television or live stream or whatever, please understand. I'm asking you to understand this. This is not the chattel slavery that we have had in the horrific chattel slavery that has been the story of America of the last several hundred years and that you know, we still have this, the, the blight of the African slave trade. These are bond ser- servants. It's a whole thing. I don't have time to get into that. But this is just understand it's different. So when you read slave, don't try to contextualize it within the 20, 20th or 21st century. 
It's a different type of slavery. Oftentimes it was indebtedness and then they were bonded in to pay off their debt. But anyway, we, are, we now call ourselves bond slaves. Paul did. I'm a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bought me with a price. I'm no longer my own, meaning I am now indebted to him and I want to steward my life in such a way that makes him pleased. So first of all, we have something that's been done really well. Ten times in five times. Nice. They are now in charge of, well, these various cities. So now notice, notice, I just want to take you, if you don't mind, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We just get a little picture of this. Paul is writing the letter at Corinth, and he's just making sure that everybody understands that if you are a follower of Jesus, there will be something called the judgment seat of Christ for believers. Now, some of you know this well. I teach about this a lot because I think it's so informative. It helps me get up and think rightly and construct rightly my plans about the next month or the next year or the rest of my life. And if I'm just floating around, I'm going to be pulled to and fro by every you know, wind of doctrine, every ideology. I'll see something I like, I'll say, and I'll just spend the next year going after that. I need to think very intentionally about my life. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 3 allude to this judgment seat of Christ for believers, not for punishment, as you'll see. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. You have to be pretty intentional to lay a foundation. From what I see about our building project on Jefferson, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. There's a lot that goes into it. And another is building on it. We're going to build a foundation there. I believe that we'll build a foundation on Jefferson at 49th and other people maybe decades into the future are going to build on that foundation. And it's going to continue to have a profound impact and I am stewarding, necessarily, I'm stewarding what the Lord has given me to make that happen, and, but I'm not going to see the project finished. Somebody else is going to come and build on it as well, and I'm building on what people have already built here in this valley over the last 20 years. I have walked into the labor of some of them, and that's the picture he's giving us. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus. First of all, we know it's Jesus. But if any man builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Okay, so he gives us a juxtaposition between gold and all here, and then wood, hay, and straw. He said, each man's work will become evident. When? On that day. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. There's no fooling the creator of the cosmos in terms of the quality of our work. It matters who you partner with. It matters where you give your money. It matters, your intentionality matters. It, it, it matters the, to, to do things with excellence and quality. Is it gold, silver, and precious stones? Or is it just you leading your own life and throwing a few scraps to the Lord just in case there's a something out there one day? No, it matters. 
It says, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So this very much falls in line with the idea of the parable of the miners. The reward, however, is not just a bigger house with bigger swimming pools and movie stars. The, the, the bigger reward is your ability in the, in the afterlife, in the new heavens and the new earth, to carry a weightiness, a proven weightiness in your stewardship capitalism where you might have a role that is enlarged in and beyond your life. Do you even aspire to that? I've never met someone who I, it's, it's obvious fruit is in their life that they say, I love Jesus and I worship him. And I, I've just never met this. Maybe, they, maybe you, can, you can come to me after the service if you're this person. But I don't think they exist. I, I love Jesus. I worship. I, I'm in the word every day. And I just, I just love him. I love our community. But I really don't care about what I do for God. It just seems strange. Those are mutually exclusive in my experience with people. People who have a true understanding of who Jesus is relationally always want to, well, you know, thanks, Lainey and Peggy and Irene and Judy and all this. They want to do this with excellence, everything that they do, both inside the kingdom and the church and outside, even in their own business. They, they want to run a business they want to do with wonderful ethics. They want a good name. A good name's more valuable than gold. Uh, when they raise a family, they want to raise a family with excellence. They don't want to sit around and do nothing. They want to work hard knowing that one day they will give an account for everything, not just the spiritual direction of their lives, but the totality of their lives. When people see you, do they see excellence, intentionality, or do you have a reputation as being, well, a wicked slave? You know, I, I hire a lot of people, you know, between links and being involved in different ministries and Church of the Red Door and all the different things. I, I'm, in, I'm responsible for a lot of people, and I'm always looking for people that shine more brightly than me, that work, that work with excellence, that are diligent, that are conscientious that are insightful and wise because I know that's also going to reciprocally rub off on me. I'm not casual about my acquaintances. I'll share Jesus with anybody, but I am not casual about the connections that I make because I know that the connections I make are going to have a profound impact on the very stewardship of my own life. And that stewardship doesn't end until I breathe my last. Can you imagine this? If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. I guess it begs the question, are there those people who don't steward their lives well, aren't intentional, that will in some way be saved? I think the answer to 1 Corinthians 3 is yes, but why? <laughs> why would you want to follow Jesus and not do it well? Come on, church at the Red Door. Why would we want to be in this valley? I want to see us multiply. I want to see our impact multiply. Why? Because people's lives are at stake. There's marriages that are collapsing. There's addictions. There's selfishness, a materialistic world, a worldview that leads to just wanting more. A preoccupation with always getting more never leads to anything but a life lived less nobly, period. It never works. 
There are people out there that need to know, that need to be brought into community where they can get up and celebrate with one another and mourn with one another and do life together excellently. I'm really cautious about my relationships because I know that outside the context of excellence on, in terms of my relationships, it will have a direct impact on whether I produce 10 times or 8 times or 5 times or whatever, or I can just, I don't risk anything, and I am so hurt, and I have just lived this life. Sometimes you just got to take that childlike faith and just go for it. And yes, there's risk, but let me tell you something. There's greater risk in not doing anything than there is in doing something, period. As it relates to the wicked slave, you know, I don't know. I, 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 that just is, uh, I don't live there. I don't want to live there. And I want to, sort of, again, surround myself with people that won't even allow me to live there. If you don't hear messages like this often, be careful. Because we may just all be self-congratulatory folks and sit around and aren't we wonderful for being believers. But in fact, we're not practicing stewardship capitalism at all. We don't give of our time. We don't give of our energy. We don't give of our finances. Why is this building not? We can build this building. We can get it done and on there. Why? For my ego, I do not need a building at all so that we can multiply, so we can see thousands of people. We've been saying this for eight years. We believe we're going to see thousands of people come to know Jesus. Let's steward our lives well because, well... It doesn't stink yet, but it might be close. It'll be over before you know it. And then finally, in closing this morning, there's that third group. Now, in the case of this is a very strong pronouncement that Jesus has made. He said there are going to be people that say, we do not want him to rule over us. He is not our king. The prophets had seen this coming. Not all the Jewish people. Many of them would embrace him. Upwards of 20,000, it's estimated, Jews began to follow Jesus after his resurrection. It was a sect of Judaism called the Way. Many of them were heavily persecuted, not only by the nation surrounding them, but by their own people. It wasn't all the Jews, but by and large, ethnic Israel looked at Jesus and said, we, will, we do not want this man to rule over us. And the end of that is always judgment because there is no other place. So, well, I, think it's, I think it's unfair. I don't like believing in a God that is not a God. I don't like a God of justice. Really? That is just weird. If you knew what God knew, knew and you had to look at what God has to look at every day across this world, pedophilia, sex trafficking, the, the, just the gratuitous murder and all the stuff that he has to witness all over this world, the selfishness and the, and the, the lack of concern for the poor, and, and, and you had to look at that, and then you did nothing about it, I would want to run the other way from a God that does nothing about it, because if he does nothing about it, he obviously cares nothing about it. 
you want to worship a God that is a God of justice. And he has provided a way of escape. And his name clearly is Jesus. He couldn't have been more clear. We'll close with these three one-sentence verses. Listen to what he says in John 1.1, or the, the chronicle or the gospel here. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. John 12.48, he who rejects me does not receive my sayings. And he has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. That's what we've been talking about today, folks, the last day. What's going to judge you? The words that Jesus spoke. What did he speak? Well, part of what he spoke was the parable of the minus. Grab onto that. And then finally, John 10, 33, whoever denies me before men... I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Let's just be clear. Jesus was clear. Let me say that again. Let's be clear here today. Jesus did not mince words. He was not subtle and nuanced and we can't understand what he said. He was very clear. There's a day when things will be set right. You can live on your own and try to stand before a holy God and then give an account for your life outside of me, or you can come to me and I will cover all your sins and cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, never to be un unpacked again. Now, that leads you then to the stewardship of your life, but it is the beginning of a journey, not the end, not the end of the destination. And that, my friends, is the story of the Minas. You may have some questions on this. Feel free. Email us this week or whatever. We'll do the best we can. Uh, this is challenge. This is deep teaching. I mean, this is uh, to understand this. But I beg you not to walk out of here and not think deeply about what has been said here by Jesus. My disciples will abide in my word, and then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. What does that mean? Following Jesus and working for his kingdom and his glory is the most exciting, benefiting, not only in the future, but today, lifestyle you could possibly live. This is not an invitation to punishment. This is an invitation to a glorious journey in the context of a missional community that will lead you to being able to see, well, people get baptized. People come to know Jesus and marriages restored and all the other things that are just outworkings of the beautiful flow of that water that goes flowing out of the temple, which we, in fact, are living stones.